All right. As we come to the scripture now, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Father, even now as we come to your word, I, I pray that you would grant grace to us. We've been focusing, I trust, our attention upon you in every way. We've begun by realizing the great power of the name of Jesus and that we come in his name. And so we've invoked your presence, if you will, called upon you to help us to worship you. We've heard from your word. We've confessed our sins. We've received assurance that all who trust in Jesus are forgiven their sins. We've professed our faith in you that whether in life and death, you are our only hope. We've sung of your greatness and your awesomeness. We've even thought about the cleansing that comes by faith in Jesus and the great renewing grace of your Holy Spirit. And so now we come to your word and and we pray in particular that you'd give us Grace to hear and to listen, to understand, to grant me uh, the grace of peace and rest. To speak that which is true. And Father, that we all would hear it and believe. And even then as we come to your table, that it would be a time of testimony and refreshment. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, please. Uh, Old Testament book, Nehemiah chapter 4, please. I want to read uh, the entire chapter. Nehemiah chapter 4, please. This is the word of God. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Uh, Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, uh, what are they building? If a fox goes up on a hill, break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said... And they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Well, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. 
So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work uh, with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we're separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that there may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. All right, now you remember that Nehemiah has been called by God to go back to Jerusalem uh, to help and to uh, sort of oversee the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. Great task, important task. And remember, it's so important that it's bigger than simply building a wall. The wall was necessary so that the people would be protected, so that within the community they could gather to worship and they could develop the culture of God, of being God's people. Now, the big picture of all of that goes all the way back, if you will, to Genesis 3, where God promised that out of the seed of the woman would come one who would uh, bless all the families of the earth. And it, it jumps ahead uh, to Abraham, who was told that out of from his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, if you will. I misquoted Genesis 3. I just confused it with Genesis 12. So let me go back to Genesis 3, where the promise was that that one would come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. Uh, and then in Genesis uh, 12, that one would come from, from Abraham's clan, his seed, and bless all of the families of the earth. So for that to happen, there, has, there had to be a people of Abraham. There had to be this Israel. And so this city, Jerusalem, the city of the great king, was necessary too in the plan of God. And so the walls were necessary to keep this people safe so they could be a people out of which the Messiah would come. All right, so that's the big picture. So that's the important part of this. And so when we think about Nehemiah rebuilding these walls. We're thinking about not something like a construction project, but we're thinking of something very spiritual. We're thinking something very necessary in the plan of God, the keeping of his people, the building of his people. And so we jump there to think about how it is that we can learn how to be and build the church. Now, It was no real surprise to Nehemiah that in rebuilding these walls, there would be opposition. The opposition began even as Nehemiah entered into the city. You remember in chapter 2, right after Nehemiah had gone uh, to Artaxerxes, the king, and, and, and asked 
this Artaxerxes who had stopped the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem to allow him to go, his slave, his cupbearer, and oversee the rebuilding of the walls and have Artaxerxes pay for it. And so as, as Nehemiah entered into the city, you remember from chapter 2 and, and verse 10, we, we read this. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, guys we just read about, I heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So they were upset just at his coming in. They were happy that the walls were unbuilt and that Jerusalem was not strong and not a people, uh, so Jerusalem would be no threat to them. And then later in verse uh, 9 of chapter 2, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite uh, servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, that is the rebuilding of the walls, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we as servants will arise and build and you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And so, so, so Nehemiah had this opposition right off the bat. And, and, and then in chapter three, as he organized all the people to do the work together, as we noticed, um, the work proceeds and these various ones <clears throat> rear up their opposition. Sanballat, uh, is enraged and he, he, he jeers at them. He, it's, it's sort of a psychological warfare kind of thing. He's trying to discourage them, uh, to, to dismay them, uh, so that they'll stop building them, building. You know, Nehemiah has been encouraging them, speaking to them of the Lord and, and how important this work is and that God will be with them. And, and yet this discouragement comes, notice, how it comes that they're greatly enraged and jeer at the Jews. Um, and he says in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria. And so there's this show of power even, this army. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? In other words, look at them. They're just incompetent. And we were even surprised as we read about perfumers and goldsmiths and the poor and, and even the priests. Working on this wall, these were not trained, you know, engineers. These were not trained builders. And, and so if you really did look at them, and if they looked around too much, they would say, uh, we're not really fit for this task. And, 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 and the, those outside realized that. They said, what are these feeble Jews doing? They just, they're so incompetent. Will, will they restore it for themselves? In other words, this task is really beyond them. Will they sacrifice? And, and that was a, a jeer at their faith. He's saying, what do they think they can do? Pray a little and this wall will pop up. What do they think? They just make a sacrifice or two and, and then, then this thing will get completed. There's no relationship between sacrificing and worshiping God and, and doing this work. Were they crazy? Uh, will they finish up in a day? Don't they have any idea how long this is going to take? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and, 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 and the burned ones of that? In other words, how, what, what material are they going to use? Everything is, has been destroyed. The, 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 the rocks are just crumbling before them. And so they begin to, 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 to jeer them. And then Tobiah, the Ammonite, you know, makes a little joke, you know, if a fox goes up on a wall, uh, he'll break it, uh, he will uh, break down their stone wall. In other words, it's being built so poorly that, that just a little, it won't take anything to knock it down. It's just false security for them. 
So how then does Nehemiah respond? Well, we'll look at that in a minute because there's even, there's even more stuff happening. In, in verse 7, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, uh, the Arab and the Ammonites and the Ashtonites and all of that. In other words, they're completely surrounded. Each one of these people is in the north, south, east, and west of them. And, and so they're surrounded completely and, 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 and they begin uh, their, their taunts and they say, we're going to fight against Jerusalem. Now, it's unlikely that they would uh, have an onslaught of their army against Jerusalem because, remember, Artaxerxes the king had sent some soldiers, but they describe how they're going to do it. It's sort of like what we would call uh, guerrilla warfare in verse 11. It says, And our enemies said, uh, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. In other words, we're going to infiltrate them. And see what's fascinating is while we look at Sanballat and Tobias, Tobiah and this Geshem as, as, as outsiders and enemies, and they were indeed enemies, they weren't so much outsiders. Uh, Sanballat's uh, daughter was married to the son of the high priest, we learn. And Tobiah had relatives who were in Jerusalem. His name is a Jewish name. And, and so they were insiders, but outsiders, outsiders, but insiders. And so they said, we've got our people uh, in there and they're going to infiltrate and you won't even know it. And we're, so they didn't even know who might be their friend or their enemy in the midst of that as they, they did their work. And it looks like this psychological warfare, this discouragement was working. In verse 10, we read this. The strength of of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. That was the, the, the talk in the town. And then uh, in verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times. In other words, Nehemiah is saying over and over and over and over again. Like we didn't know it. But they were so nervous, they came to us ten times, and he said, you must return to us, as you must come back here, and we must all gather uh, together um, to fight this. And so that's the opposition that comes to Nehemiah's work. Now, as I mentioned early on, we could take some time, and it would be profitable, I suppose, to talk about Nehemiah's uh, leadership skills and all of that, but, but I don't think that's the point of it, uh, to learn uh, leadership skills from Nehemiah. Uh, you, you read the plan and it's, it works. I mean, it's really good uh, on its face. But, but, but I think there's something else for us to really learn as we think about uh, our own lives. And so first this. That is that uh, when we are really following the Lord, when we are really serving him, there will be opposition. I, I trust that surprises no one, all right? There will be opposition. It's the way it's been from the very beginning. I mean, we could just simply begin with the life and the teaching of Jesus. I mean, when Jesus was born, we saw the opposition raise its head. Right? In the very beginning with Herod. I mean, we sort of read quickly over each Christmas time about the bloodbath that took place when Herod had all the little boys two years old and under killed in the area in which he thought the Messiah might be. I mean, think of that. That's evil 
satanic opposition against Jesus. And then Jesus himself, uh, even he was baptized, the spirit came upon him. And where did the spirit lead him? He led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Even as he began his work, we can see the opposition uh, as, as sort of the, 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 the veil is opened and we can peace peer in and see the spiritual battle happening. And we realize that Satan comes to Jesus. And, and that happens throughout. Is it always astounding that the demon-possessed people always knew who Jesus was when his own disciples were often confused? And they knew who he was because that was the battle. That was this sort of unseen battle. And these folks, demon-possessed, the demons would raise their heads when Jesus would walk in and often address him. Why are you here? What are you going to do with us? And you realize that as Jesus cast them out. And Jesus reminds us very, very honestly, even as we read uh, what is, is this wonderful piece of scripture we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in this wonderful piece, we call the Beatitudes, the blessings. What's it mean to be a person blessed by God? That is, what's it mean to be a person who has God's favor? What's it mean to be blessed? That is, to be spoken, thought of, received well by God. One of them is this, you know this one, verse 10 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Uh, uh, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we read that and we say, that doesn't fit. (laughs) How is that a blessing? Well, it's just simply the truth. Jesus wasn't saying this to scare them any more than we're talking about this now to scare ourselves. But he's saying this is the reality of it. And trust me, in the midst even of persecution for the sake of my name, he says, there'll be blessing for you. There'll be blessing for you. And you'll rejoice and be glad. Again, as as Jesus was speaking with his disciples on the night he was betrayed, again, just out of pure and simple honesty, not the night he was betrayed, a few, uh, a while before, but in, in John chapter 15, in verse 18, he says to them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, uh, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And you, you get that sense of Jesus being very honest, Second, I know it seems good at times, but please understand there's opposition. And as you go forth in my name, you'll see the opposition. And of course they did. So we read through the book of Acts. We we read through, we realize the opposition that the apostles received. We realize the opposition that the early church uh, received. In fact, in one of the churches that the apostle Paul planted that we read about in in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, the church in Thessalonica, We read this about them. Paul says to them in chapter 1, verse 4, We know, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 
And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And and, and that's it. They received it. And if you read about the church in Thessalonica and the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see the, 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 the opposition that they faced as they received the gospel. But they received it with joy because they were suffering, persecuted for the sake of Christ, his name. So this opposition comes. And then Paul says in in a sentence in in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, that I, I wonder if we understand yet. Verse 12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus uh, will be uh, will be persecuted. And so we see this opposition against Jesus. In fact, I came across, uh, there's a woman named Anne Rice who has written in some theological and spiritual context some novels. I don't recommend her uh, and I, I, any of that. So, so don't take this as an endorsement. I've never read one of her books, but I did read an introduction to one. <laughs> Bookstores are wonderful places to read. And, uh, and, uh, and, and here's what she said as she was doing her research for a book. I think it was called Jesus, the Lord out of Egypt, something like that. She said this, this is fascinating. She said, I was unconvinced in her own life by wild postulations of those who claim to be children of the enlightenment. And I also had sent something else. This is what she found in her scholarship studying Jesus. Many of these scholars, scholars who apparently devoted their life to New Testament scholarship, disliked Jesus. Some pitied him as a hopeless failure. Others sneered at him and some felt an outright contempt. This came between the lines of the books. This emerged in the personality of their texts. She said, I've never come across this kind of emotion in any other field of research, uh, at least not to this extent. It was just puzzling. She says, the people who go into Elizabethan studies... I don't have to take her word for this. The people who go into Elizabethan studies don't set out to prove that Queen Elizabeth I was a fool. They don't personally dislike her. They don't make snickering remarks about her or spend their careers trying to pick apart her historical reputation. They approach her in other ways. They don't even apply this sort of dislike or suspicion or contempt to other Elizabethan figures. If they do, the person is usually not the focus of the study. Occasionally, a scholar studies a villain... Yes, but even then, the author generally ends up arguing for the good points of the villain or for his own place in history or for some mitigating circumstance that redeems the study itself. People studying disasters in history may be highly critical of the rulers of the milieu at the time, yes, but in general, scholars don't spend their lives in the company of historical figures whom they openly despise. But there are New Testament scholars who detest and despise Jesus Christ. Of course, we're all, we all benefit from the freedom in the academic community. We benefit from the enormous size of biblical studies today and the great range of contributions that are being made. I'm not arguing for censorship, but maybe I'm arguing for sensitivity on the part of those who read these books. Maybe I'm arguing for a little wariness when it comes to the field in general. What looks like solid ground might not be solid ground at all. But that's a fascinating, isn't it? The people, and this is true, you can find these books probably the vast majority in a library, you can find books of people who study the life of Jesus and yet detest him, at least as we would understand him. And so we see, and, and you know from some measure of 
living a life devoted to Jesus. That there are those who might say to you, as they've said to me, but you seem so reasonable. How can you believe in Jesus? You seem so intellectual, so smart. Otherwise, why is it that you've given yourself up to this myth? Do you really believe that this book has been authored by God through the human authors and is God-breathed? Do you really believe that? In, In a world of such scientific knowledge, do you really believe that God is the creator of all things? Do you, do you really believe that, that human sexuality is defined in this book, even though it runs contrary to the passions and the attitudes of people? We, we hear these things really all the time. Do you really believe in, in real justice? And do you really believe in turning the other cheek? Do you really believe in forgiving those who've hurt you? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that all human beings are sinners? Condemned to everlasting destruction. Lest they trust in Jesus as the one who has taken the punishment for their sin. Risen again. And rules and reigns over everything. For the sake of his people and the glory of his father. Do you really believe that? And we've all felt the sneers, whether it's from classmates, whether it's from family, whether it's from colleagues, whether it's from neighbors, um, whether it's from other religious people. Uh, We get that. um, And we see it throughout the history of the world, even worse, and we may need to be prepared for the even worse someday. But we know that. We know that there is opposition. Now, how did... How did Nehemiah handle it? Well, first, he prayed. And, and, and interestingly, it's not the fact that he prayed that, that surprises us. It's, it's how he prayed. Uh, notice his prayer. He says, Hear, O our God, for we're despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, verse 4, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they've provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And we go, Whoa! How can he pray like that? Can we pray like that? Uh, We realize that he's praying in a good tradition of what we call the imprecatory psalms, these imprecations, these prayers for justice and the destruction of the enemies of of God. Uh, We realize that the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 encourages the church by simply saying, I know there are persecutors against you, but but trust me, God will um, destroy them when Jesus returns. They'll be condemned. They'll be punished. The uh, saints in glory, Revelation chapter 6, pray, Oh Lord, how long? How long will it be until you avenge our deaths, avenge this great injustice? These martyrs pray even in glory. And yet we wonder, how does that square? When Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for them, bless those who curse you. When Jesus himself on the cross said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. When, when the great uh, martyr Stephen uh, was being killed, uh, he prayed to the father 
to Jesus, whom he really saw standing, said, don't hold this to their account. When Paul writes to the church in Rome and says, concerning those who persecute you, bless those who persecute you and do good to them. Don't repay evil with evil. How, how do we kind of square uh, all of that, and how do we how do we really pray then in the context of enemies? Given all of that, in the context of of this opposition, well, I'd say this first. Remember, when Nehemiah is in the course of redemptive history, that he's a political figure as well as a as, as, as well as a, a church figure, as well as a, a spiritual one, if you will. They they have work to do that requires and they're real that requires them protection, and they're real physical enemies that may come against them. And, all of that. But, but secondly, remember this, that like the psalmists and like the saints in glory, there is such a pure identification with the glory of God and enemies who are not so much my enemies, but God's enemies and are thwarting his work. And we know that unless they repent, they will be judged. And so this is a prayer that God simply act according to his will. Now, vengeance is the Lord's. And so even Nehemiah and even the psalmist pray that God would take care of it, not them. God would do the fighting and he would do uh, the destruction of the enemies. And the realization that when we have personal opposition, personal enemies, that we're to pray that God will enable us to love them. And forgive them. And that we would bless them and not curse them. But we would also have the assurance. That if they do not repent. Do not change their ways. Do not stop opposing. And that God will judge them. And we simply know that. And can rest in that. So I would say this. If there's opposition and you really want to pray this. And that's the first thing you think of. You probably shouldn't. Right? You probably shouldn't. You probably think it through better. Well, what am I identifying with? Is this personal? Is this about God? Do I hate them? Or am I concerned about the glory of God? And then I, I like this advice from J.I. Packer. He writes this. He says, The truth is that restraining the desire for revenge and asking God to show mercy to your enemies by converting them, while at the same time acknowledging that he will certainly judge his enemies and even asking him to start doing that at once, are not mutually exclusive. In other words, he says this. He says, you can, you can pray uh, that God would show mercy to enemies and convert them, and at the same time acknowledge that he will certainly judge them. That those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Both are expressions of God-glorifying desire. That is our desire to glorify God. Both have the hallowing of God's name as their goal. And of necessity, we express both in major ignorance of the details of God's plan as it relates to the destinies of individuals. In other words, he says, he says, we, we know these two aspects of the will of God. To bless them by their repentance, conversion, and also to judge the unrepentant. We know both of those things, so we can pray both of those things with a good heart. Because we don't really know the destinies. We really don't know the outcome of this. To pray, God, bless my enemy. God, bless them in such a way that they see the kindness of God 
and repent. But God, this too I know, that if they do not repent, I know you will avenge, and I know you will be just. It says, Scripture shows us very plainly that these petitions, expressing the desire that God's will be done, is an activity that God certainly wills. And that knowledge should suffice to keep us praying both for the conversion of people we know and for the overthrow of all those who oppose God's work. We can actually do both by praying that God would convert, but that he would overthrow any who would come against his work and to do that however he wills. So Nehemiah prays. The second thing he does in the context of his praying even is he, he reminds the people, and this will go very quickly, he, says, he reminds the people, he says, remember the Lord. Verse um, 14, he says, and I looked and I arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You see, that's the under, underpinning um, point of Nehemiah's whole life and leadership. He's thinking about, he's remembering, he's pondering. He has the Lord before him. He's not afraid because he sees the Lord and then through the Lord he sees the situation. If we see the situation and try to find God, we're in trouble. I always say the thing that makes a mountain out of a molehill is if we bring the molehill very close. And that's all then we can really see. Over well, Nehemiah, he was remembering the Lord. He always had the Lord before him. There's a great song in Sesame Street. Uh, and I don't watch that anymore. Uh, but when our kids were little, so I have no idea. I'm not endorsing Sesame Street. I don't know what Sesame Street is doing today. But when, you know, my kids were little 150 years ago, when my kids were little, uh, it was great. And they had this wonderful song, and it was about perspective. And the, the, the chorus went, That's about the size. It's where you put your eyes. That's about the size of it. And so, of course, the the scene was an airplane going over top and everything everything looked really small. But then the airplane would get closer and come down and everything would get bigger. It was the same size. It was just simply perspective. And so for Nehemiah and for us, we need to remember the Lord. We need to keep him close and personal. So we see all of life through the greatness and the awesomeness of God. Nehemiah says the task is huge. The enemies are great, but God is greater and more awesome. And he's called us to this work. So we needn't be afraid of the amount of work and we needn't be afraid of the opposition, but we need to just simply get after it. And so he prayed, he remembers the Lord and then he acts. Uh, he says, let's, let's do this. And so he thinks through a plan in the presence of the Lord. And he, he lays it out. And he said, some of you have swords. And some of you have trowels, if you will. Some of you have swords. And some of you have, 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 have implements in order to rebuild the walls. And some of you have both. And this is how we're going to do it. But I want you to remember this. If any time you sense danger, the trumpet will sound and will gather together. And you need to know that our God will fight for us. You see, acting, taking up the swords taking up the trowels, taking up the pickaxes or whatever they had. Acting 
is not a, uh, doesn't come from a lack of faith, but from real faith. When we trust God, then that enables, that faith enables us to act. Yes, God is sovereign. He had decreed really the walls would get rebuilt. But he would use the means of the people to do it. And knowing God's decree freed them then to act. We could say it this way if you want to be theological. God's sovereignty is not inconsistent with human responsibility. That we're responsible to act as God commands. And we do that in faith, you see. And so when God says, I'll fight for you, he didn't say, you know, go get a cup of coffee and sit down and watch it. Now, at times he did in history. But generally, when God says, I'm going to fight for you, he means go fight. And as you fight, you'll see that I'm with you. And you'll see the results of my being present with you. Uh, One of the... ah, I'm sorry, I'm going to go over time today. That's a surprise to you. Um, one of the wonderful passages of this is, is the wonderful story of David and Goliath. Now, oftentimes we think of this as a children's story, but we know that it isn't because it's crucial in the whole arc of what God is doing through a redemptive history. And you remember that when, 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 when David is facing Goliath, this little kid with inadequate weapons, and no armor, and he's facing this great giant, he has confidence. Why? Because he knows that when Goliath comes after him, as David says, you're not coming after me, but you're coming after the Lord. And if I'm Goliath, I'm scratching my head, and I'm saying, well, where is he? And David would know he's with me. And so you're in trouble. Because God is fighting for his people through me and this sling and this stone and you'll see it and that's true for us you see as well that's why the psalmist says when in psalm 42 when i'm in tears and i wonder where the lord is i need to remind myself i need to speak to my soul and say hope in god god remember the lord remember him think about him he's great and awesome hope in him Yes, you're in tears right now, but, but trust that he's with you. And a day will come when those tears will be no more. You wonder where he is because of, of, of difficulties in life. Well, he says, trust and hope in the Lord. Speak to your soul. Speak that truth. Hope in him. In fact, John sees in the revelation, in Revelation in chapter 12, he sees the great battle. And he sees the evil one coming against the people of God. And he says, here's how they overcame him. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and that they did not love their lives unto death. So he said, here's how they overcame Satan when he attacks. When Satan attacks, what do we do? Well, we we don't say, oh, I've got this. We say, God's got this. And so we overcome him by trusting in the blood of the lamb. When the evil one comes and says, 
Who are you to think that you really that you really belong to the Lord? Who are you to think that God loves you? Who are you to think that you can work in the context of of a Christian church and and build faith in people? Who do you think you are to do do VBS and actually think that these little children who spend most of their time watching television playing video games? Who do you think you are that you're going to be able to press in on them and, 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 and they're going to receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who do you think you are to, to think that you're going to be able to pour into the lives of, of teenage kids who, who live in this world? Who, who, do you, who do you think you are that you're going to be able to pour into their lives and see them flourish in faith? Who do you think you are to take these little children and Give them the sign of the covenant and trust that God will work in their lives and they will believe. Who, who are you to, to, to speak on behalf of God and expect anyone to hear and believe? Who are you to stand in the presence of God and pray and think that he'll hear you? And when Satan says that to me, I go, you know what? You're right. But I stand in the blood of the Lamb. That's it. I stand in Jesus, his blood for me, that I might be forgiven my sins, his righteousness given to me, that I might stand in the presence of God. And so when those accusations come, I remember the Lord. That's what we do on Sundays. We come to remember the Lord. I don't know about you, but sometimes by Friday, I forget him, right? So Sundays are important to us to gather together. And people say to us, how do you think you can build a church? How do you think you can get people to gather on Sunday when there's so many other alternatives, when there's so many other things to do on a Sunday, well, when kids have sports activities and, and, and parents want their kids to be involved? How do you think that you can actually gather a group of people on a Sunday morning And I said, because we need to remember the Lord. And we need to do that together. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You need to remember me. Here, I'll give you something tangible to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle said, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. That's it, you see. We're declaring the Lord's death, the blood of the lamb. That's our testimony. That's what we're sticking to. That's what we witness of. That Christ has died for me. Thus my sins are forgiven. He has given his righteousness to me. Thus I can stand in the presence of God. Forgiven. And received, accepted, justified. And I'll walk in that. All the days of my life. And if someone comes to me and they said. We're going to kill you unless you deny Christ. We'll say. Well, no. And when the Lord comes and says, I want you to deny yourself. 
and take up your cross and follow me? We say yes. Because we do not love our own lives. But rather we love him who has given his life that we might live. Remember the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that we would remember Jesus now. Thank you for these elements. I pray that you set them apart, this bread and this juice, set it apart in such a way that we know that Jesus lives and we're in his presence. And because he lives, we live. Because he lives, we know that sins are forgiven. Because he lives, we know that his righteousness is ours. Because he lives, we know he rules and reigns. And because he rules and reigns, we know we needn't fear. We know that he's awesome, that he's great. That he'll always fight for us. That frees us to act. It frees us to follow him. It frees us to not love our lives even unto death. But Father, I pray that even now at this moment you would cause our minds to think, to remember, to focus upon our Lord Jesus and work in our hearts in such a way that we know that he lives and, he's in, and we're in his presence and that God, you would then bless us so that we would leave this place on this day knowing the Lord lives that he'll fight for us. And regardless of the opposition, whether it's outside or within, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, it will be triumphant in him. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.